Mr. Abrahams will run alone. Your name is college, if you please, sir. Lindsay. I race beside my friend here. We challenged in the name of Repton, Eaton, and Keith. I didn't know you ran, nor are you. Some chap told me about this shindig over breakfast. I thought I'd come and push you along a bit, what? Delighted. Splendid. Good luck. Gentlemen, to your marks, if you please. Now remember, on the first strike of 12. So we filmed that in San Marino three days ago. <laughs> Actually, uh, that's from the movie Chariots of Fire, and it was one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid. And uh, as a result, when I went to Trinity College in Connecticut, they had an uh, exact replica of the Trinity uh, clock tower at Trinity College in Cambridge. And one day, I started walking around the campus. There was this long sidewalk, and it went into a half circle, and then there was this big part of grass. And I started to think, and I had this vision, almost a vision in my mind, of doing this race there, except the race would be different. We would have it at midnight instead of at noon. You know, you've gotten to know me a little bit by now. So we had it at midnight, and we had it the same way. The engineering students set the clock tower to ring 12 strokes uh, for the longest time that it had ever been run. And it was an amazing race. Every year, the students would gather on the quad, and, and, and there were some kids that shouldn't be running and some kids that should. And uh, some kids probably even showing up with cigarettes in their mouth saying that they heard about it at lunch or whatever they were doing right beforehand. And the experience was amazing to see people coming together. And it was so rewarding to see that as a result of a vision that I had had, and then sharing that vision with other people. So we put together this committee called the Court Chase Committee, the first committee I ever formed. It was, uh, I didn't know I'd be doing committees for the rest of my life. And the committee uh, used, had a little budget, and they commissioned a plaque to be built. And on the plaque, uh, they chose out of all of the Mark Twain quotes they could have chosen, we took the quotationary. Have you ever seen one of those? We took it out and tried to find all of the relevant quotes we could write. They chose a quote from a prophet, an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. And this is, these are the words that, they, that we had chiseled in stone. Then the Lord answered me and said, and we wrote these words, write the vision and make it plain upon tablets so that a runner may read it. So that a runner may read it. Have you ever had a vision in your heart 
and felt like God was telling you, like he told Habakkuk, to share that vision with other people, to write it on a table or to chisel it out so clearly and plainly so that other people could see the truth or the truth of what could be. Now, I have a friend uh, here uh, at this church that has shared recently with me an invention of his, and I'd love to um, get your feedback on it. He wants to get your feedback, but, but his invention's really good. But here's some other inventions that are not, I'm not sure about. This one is very lazy. Uh, this is an orange juice tipping mach- <laughs> mechanism. They get worse. This is an ice cream uh, thing that twirls the scoop for you so that you don't have to move your tongue or twist the, hand, the cone. So I thought... <laughs> Can someone please get that for me for Christmas? And then this is a, a toilet paper extending thing that I don't really get, but I guess if your toilet's a long way away from the toilet paper, that's probably a good idea, actually. Never mind, that should be... This is magic scissors if your hands are too, too lazy to squeeze the scissors up and down, but, you know, someone might need that. Uh, the next one is great. This is if you shouldn't have a cat. You really shouldn't have a cat, but you do. This is a pet petter, and it means... So if you're too lazy to pet your cat then this will pet your cat for you. And then this is great. You don't actually have to do exercises. As a guy, you can just wear this under the shirt and it will give the impression to other people that you have an eight pack. (laughs) Actually, this is the one I want for Christmas. And I'm wearing it right now. Can you tell? No. Um, (laughs) There are some inventions that should never be created. There's some visions that should never be shared. And uh, Jeremiah is pretty adamant about that. There's some people that are saying things sharing things that, that don't make any sense. Now, now we are looking at uh, the prophet Jeremiah right now, and if you don't know who Jeremiah was, and if you can't remember exactly when Jeremiah lived, I, I figured out a quick trick. Jeremiah started sharing visions in the year 626. Does that remember, remind you of any number? You're, uh, the area code in San Marino. So if anyone ever asks you when Jeremiah first started sharing visions and was asked by God to share visions, you could say 626. 626 BC. And Jeremiah was very reluctant. He said, God, I do not want to do this because I I am a child. That was Jeremiah's response. But but then uh, Jeremiah was set in this context. And like any great visionary, the job of the visionary is first to say what is. to, To have a good assessment of what the lay of the land is. And to share that vision with other people. So Jeremiah had to tell people how bad things had gotten. Had to tell people, you know, this is the reality, this is where we are, and this is where we shouldn't be. And people really didn't get it. They thought that things were normal. And it's pretty messed up that people thought things were normal because actually they were doing things that were really abnormal. They were taking uh, pieces of wood off of trees and then just someone would carve a face in it and they would say, here's a God, Let's, let's center our lives around this God. Which is a crazy thing to think about considering they had a God, they had a beautiful, perfect God They had a real God, and then they went and created a fake one. Jeremiah actually describes in the book, uh, in his writings, and in his sayings, he says that there were as many gods as there were streets in Jerusalem at the time. But these gods were gods that promoted uh, uh, taking advantage of other people. They promoted um, living your life in ways that would destroy your body. They promoted a trajectory that was toward death and not toward life. And it was so bad, it was so bad that Jeremiah tells us that there were women who were taking their children and they were killing their children for these false gods. And that wasn't abnormal. That was the norm. 
Jeremiah had to share truth, had to open people's eyes to how bad things had gotten. And so this is what Jeremiah says to the people um, during his day and age. He says these words. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Okay, that's a very strange thing to say. Let's go back one slide. They shall no longer say, uh, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This is a way of saying, my problems today are not problems that I have created. They are problems that the person that came before me created. Now, if, if you read that, you can see that there's actually some probably pretty healthy modern psychology in there. We've discovered that a lot of the things that happen in our life and the way that we act and behave and misbehave has something to do with what some people might refer to as mommy issues, right? Mommy and daddy issues. And that's true. In psychology, they will help you, help you to understand how some of the ways that you're acting out are a result of your upbringing. But you have to move beyond that. If for the rest of your life, you're just using those things as excuses for moving forward. See, once you've had your eyes open to the reality, then you have to learn how to move beyond that and to take personal accountability for the things that you have done and the things that you are doing. Now, then, Jeremiah goes on to say these words, but all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. He's basically saying people are going to be held accountable for their own actions. They're going to realize that it's their own doing that has gotten them to where they are. They're the one that cut out that wooden statue and started to sacrifice their own child to the gods, the false gods. They're the ones that are responsible for what they've done. And then he goes on to say, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now that is so important, the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What is the old covenant? Does anyone know what the old covenant would be? Who did he make the old covenant with? Just a guess. With Moses and with Abraham and all. It's the, it's the moment when God comes to Abraham. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Did everybody get nervous at once? Right? Uh, so the old covenant was when God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But then God brought Moses up the mountain and he wrote with his finger on stone the Old Covenant, which was the Ten Commandments. And people were depraved. They were messed up. They needed these rules and this structure because they really couldn't figure out the difference between right and wrong. Just like Brad was talking about, it was like a checker game where nobody really knew what the rules were, and so they were always arguing about what to do. It's a great example. He said, wait a second. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant a new chiseling in stone with my finger, a new powerful, visible covenant. Now, the the interesting thing about the old covenant is that those tablets, those stone tablets that God wrote on with his finger, 
They had the Old Testament and the uh, Ten Commandments on it. They were kept in the holy of holies of the temple. They were kept in the holiest place in the temple. And that was believed to be where the Holy Spirit resided. That was the residence of the Holy Spirit. And only the best perfect people could go inside of the Holy of Holies. Not, and in fact, you couldn't aspire to go inside of the Holy of Holies. You had to be of the lineage. You had to be born into it. It was a familial tradition, and, and it had to take generations of generations of, of, of righteousness and perfection in order to possibly walk into that place where the Holy Spirit resided. The whole community centered all of their activity and all of their focus around the Holy of Holies, around the law, the, the old covenant. Let's read a little further. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors, which we know what that is, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke. And imagine this very visible thing of the Ten Commandments being broken, which actually happened. The Ten Commandments shattered. They broke those Ten Commandments. Though I was their husband, says the Lord. That's weird language, but if you think about it, it's God making that depth of a commandment to, uh, to the people. He's saying, uh, we, will, we will be forever wed, forever family. You will never be apart from me. And it goes on to say these words. But this covenant that I make with the house of Israel, the new covenant, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they, sh- this, is not a, this is not an option, by, by the way. <laughs> I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then it goes on to say, no longer shall they teach one another. Who, who's, who likes to hear that? No more sermons, right? <laughs> Woo, thank, yes, amen. So, no longer shall they teach one another or say to, one, to, say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. How many, who? A few? How many, how many will know him? All. They shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, even the ones who say, I'm just a child. No, that doesn't get you off the hook. Everybody's going to know the Lord, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Wow, that's amazing. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. Now, my, my teenage nephew, George, called me three days ago for a class assignment and he said, can I interview you and then write down your answers? And I, I, I thought, okay, go, shoot, whatever question you want to ask. And so he asked me these, these three questions. The first question was, they were simple questions. How can we fix poverty? Uh, what, why does poverty exist and what makes a government? <laughs> oh, okay, so I said, uh, just off the cuff, I'll give you all those answers. So immediately I thought, okay, when in doubt, go to Jesus. And I remember Jesus saying, the poor will always be with us, always. And when Jesus says always, he means always. So I said, you can't fix poverty. And I thought, that's not a really nice place to leave a teenage kid, you know, looking for the end of poverty. And I said, well, let me explain. There's different kinds of poverty. And I just kind of, you know, you start to walk yourself into a hole. There's economic poverty. There's poverty of hunger. And I was like thinking, well, there's Mother Teresa says there's, he just must think, this guy, does he have a linear thought in his life ever? Mother Teresa says that there's relational poverty. And that's the worst kind, she says. And then... I said, Jesus says that the worst kind of poverty is the poverty of the heart. And that the only way that we are ever going to find any fix for real poverty is to first find the fix for the poverty of the heart. 
And I was like, all right, check, good answer. Next question. And then he said, why does poverty exist? And I thought, greed, one word, greed. And I didn't give him any more than that. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but if, I, I like that. And then what makes a government? And I tried to answer that, and I won't tell you my answer to that. <laughs> but then when I hung up the phone, I realized that the answer to all of these questions was, was built upon a foundational understanding that people are really messed up. The way I answered the question was based on the understanding that we do not have a trajectory toward health, people. We have a trajectory toward uh, uh, H-E double hockey stick. Hell on earth. A situation where people are not treating each other with respect and dignity, where they don't see the humanity in every single person they meet, where they don't care for other people, they don't take care of the orphan and the widow. That, That is not the trajectory of the earth. Instead, the trajectory is greed. It's sin. It's manipulating and taking advantage of other people. And that's what Jeremiah was saying to the people of his day and age. He was saying, you know, we really have to recognize that we don't have it all together and that we are really messed up. And that is the first and most important thing that that we need in order to move forward. See, unless you recognize the poverty of your own heart, then you really never understand the depths of God's love for you. And and Jeremiah was in this day and age where the liars were telling lies about liars. And the truth was so convoluted that nobody could really figure out what was going on because everybody had an agenda and everybody's agenda was themselves. When Jeremiah said these words to the people, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people, this must have been a complete shock to the people. Because remember, the law is something that resides in the temple. It's in the Holy of Holies. You can never go there. You can never enter into the Holy of Holies. And what God is saying is that the law is going to be written inside of their hearts, which suddenly transforms their mind into a sacred space. It suddenly means that the Holy Spirit is going to be inside of them. It's not a residence over there anymore. It's a residing and a living and an inseparability with God and the Holy Spirit. It means that your body is no longer just a body, but it's a temple. It's a tent. It's the meeting house of the Holy Spirit. You see, when they heard this, they undoubtedly understood that. Boy, they must have really looked forward to that day when that would be happening. And when it wouldn't just be Jeremiah who would be having a private conversation with God and be able to proclaim to the world, this is wrong, I can see it's wrong, this is darkness, and this is light. But that every human being would be able to understand the difference between light and darkness because they knew it and they tasted it and they seen it. And then they can work together to transform the world. When Jeremiah said that the law would be written, on, written by God on the hearts of the people, he was saying that their hearts would become the residence of the Holy Spirit and that the only thing that could separate themselves from the love of God and the Holy Spirit in their life would be to tear out their very own heart and to end their existence. There was no separation. And even that couldn't separate you from God's love. And even that couldn't separate you from the intimacy of God's love. Some people have referred to this as a kind of tattoo on the heart. 
You are forever a part of God, and God is forever a part of you. I love Jeremiah's stubbornness. I love that he refused to to follow God's commands, to be God's spokesman to the people that were in his city in day and age. Jeremiah was an interesting figure. He was a guy uh, who, who lived outside of the community. He was a PK, not a preacher's kid. He was a priest's kid. And from the moment he was born and even before he was born, he was set apart to be a special human being. And so he never drank anything, any alcohol in his life. He never went to a feast or a festival. He never got married. And he did everything that was perfect, one thing after another. And so he was essentially blameless. And yet Jeremiah says, no, I am not equipped. I, ha- I don't have what it takes. And God says, no, you know what you're going to do is you're going to go to the gate of the city. And this is what you're going to say. This is the, one of the very first things that Jeremiah said in, in the year 626. He said these words. This is what the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel says. Improve your conduct and your actions. Imagine him standing at the gate of, of Jerusalem saying this. Improve your conduct and actions and I will dwell with you in this place. Okay, so they have an option. They can change their ways, right? Now listen to what he says. He goes on to say, don't trust in lies. Now these are the lies that you shouldn't trust in. This is the Lord's temple. The Lord's temple. The Lord's temple. No, if you truly reform your ways and your actions, if you treat each other justly, If you stop taking advantage of the immigrant, the orphan, or the widow, if you don't shed the blood of the innocent in this place or go after other gods to your own ruin, only then will I dwell with you in this place in the land that I gave long ago to your ancestors for all time. When the law of God, when the Holy Spirit of God resides in your heart, that's the moment when you start to advocate for the poor people and you advocate for the smaller people and the less fortunate people, you advocate for the immigrants, you begin to advocate for the orphans and the widows. So your whole life becomes reoriented away from selfish desires and selfish gain and and essentially a darkness trajectory toward a trajectory of light. And one that doesn't bring death to other people in the world but brings life to other people and subsequently brings life into your, into your own life. There's one last sentence in Jeremiah's words that is the most important. And it is this. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. When Jesus met with his disciples at the Last Supper and there was a big glass of wine, he held up that wine and he said, this wine, this wine is my blood. And he was going to die that night and later the next morning. This is my blood and it's poured out for you. He said, this is the new covenant. And once you receive this promise and this love, you can never separate yourself from it. So be careful before you take a drink. It will will change you forever. 
Uh, once you recognize the depths of my love for you and the power that I have to rescue you from death, you will be forever changed. But you have to do something first. You have to recognize that you need it. You have to recognize that, that you are fallen and that you need to be rescued. And when you do that, you will receive a forgiveness and you will not be held accountable for the things that you've done in your past, no matter how dark they were, no matter how many people you hurt, no matter how many family members you hurt, no matter, no matter what, you will be forgiven. And you will receive the forgiveness and the love that even a perfect person like Jeremiah, who wasn't perfect, should have received. You will receive the opportunity to not just walk into the, the holy of holies, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, to, to experience the power of seeing God's law that had been chiseled with his finger, but to experience that in your own heart. All you have to do is to receive it. God does the rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can accomplish or achieve in order to, to earn your love. In fact, it's just in the recognition that we, we deserve so much less than your love that we see your grace and your mercy that you just keep pouring love and life into us. And, and all we need to do, God, is recognize who you are, that you are our God and we are your people. And to reside in that relationship and to experience that relationship and to live it out. So God, we pray that you would guide us with your voice, each one of us, like you did with the prophet Jeremiah as we encounter a broken world around us that seems to be filled with lies and liars calling other people liars. God, we pray that you would help us to see how we could contribute our hands with our hands and our feet and our intellect and our mind. Press the vision on our hearts, God, that you have for this world, how it might be transformed, how barren places will be made into beautiful jungles of life. And so, God, we pray that uh, we pray that we would recognize this next few minutes when we bring forward our estimates of giving. We would pray that we would recognize it not as uh, not as a, a box to be checked, but as a holy time when when we get to participate in your vision in this world. We get to see the fruit of our labors alleviating this, the, the oppression of a widow or an orphan or a person in need. We see that, that light can be shed in the darkness and truth can be proclaimed to people who are so confused. And so we recognize that we are all children and the beauty of you welcoming us as your children into your embrace God a healing embrace because you are the parent who loves us perfectly and holy and who teaches us how to love and so God from that may we walk forward in faith we pray this in Jesus holy name Amen.